You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and to ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things. The treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Happy Epiphany. How are you, Father Hezekiah? Theophany. It's good to be back together after a much needed break. Um, and uh, I'm doing okay. We're here for the second Sunday in ordinary time. And um, and I've got a few hobby horses to share with you today. So nice. we will be jumping into the biblical text. We'll also talk about a couple of important principles that we need to keep in mind because our goals here with Sunday Gospel Reflection here at the beginning of the year is not necessarily always to just give you another homily, although sometimes I do allow myself to get on a little bit of a homiletic hobby horse, but more importantly, principles. Principles by which you can read your Bible um, and receive from the Word of God what it's supposed to be, and that is an invitation. But if we don't have the principles to be able to read, we won't be able to read with profit. So we're going to be uh, talking about some principles today here, and I obviously am not in my office. I am visiting a conference of priests that are, that are here uh, gathered together to study the Word of God, and uh, specifically regarding uh, prophecy and typology and all these wonderful Ooh, things. Cool. I came to the conference for you because I said, you know what? You got to sit here and listen to me every Sunday. Well, you don't have to listen to me in preparation for Sunday, but if you do and you like listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, well. I wanted to make sure I, I put in a little bit of effort here to, to get myself uh, his little continuing education. So I'm here. I've got a few things to share about the conference, but also some important principles. The first being what we're talking about today being um, the second Sunday in Ordinary Time. Because last yeah. Sunday, well, actually, I don't know. Last Sunday was Epiphany. Yeah. Which kind of overshadows the first Sunday of ordinary time. Right. Am I right about that, Annie? Yeah, I think that that is the case because I was I kind of I looked at was it the second Sunday in ordinary time. That's so interesting. Yeah, because uh, Epiphany is supposed to fall, you know, on I, I, well, however it falls in the new calendar versus the old calendar versus the Byzantine calendar. It gets to a little bit too confusing. But the most important thing to remember is the, regarding Sunday Gospel Reflections is that liturgically. The Feast of Epiphany, the Visitation of the Wise Men, the Feast of Theophany, the Baptism of the Lord, the Feast of the Wedding at Cana, and the Feast of the Nativity of the Lord were originally celebrated on one day. That was January 6th. Over time, these feasts got separated into individual feasts. However, they should always be seen in light of one another. And someone asked me, but why, Father? Actually, someone asked me this. They said, well, well we understand the, the first principle, which is this that we never look at the simple historical event as a historical event for the sake of the historical event. Sure. That is, we never look at Christmas 
and the birth of Christ simply in terms of the birth of Christ. Because in terms of that birth in a stable, in a manger, there's a baby there. And it's a momentous occasion. What's that? I said it's a momentous occasion having a baby. Well, it's a momentous occasion, but we only know it's a momentous occasion because of God's revelation, which comes to us in three three main main places. First of all, the father revealing who this child is when he comes forth in the waters of the Jordan River at the baptism of the Lord, which we're going to be hitting the tail end of today in our gospel, when the father says, behold, my beloved son. We only know who this child is when the 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 world say the secular world brings to the the child the gifts saying this is the king this is the messiah this is the ruler of the world um and when our lord himself reveals who he is at the wedding of canaan when he turns water into wine and so so the the historical event of the birth of christ is always tied to the revelatory mysteries in which they show who that one is. Yeah. So, yeah. um, and so this is, this is what we were, we're, we're, um, the kind of time we've been celebrating and the time we're entering into. And now we're into the second Sunday or the Sunday following all of this taking place, right? Here's who he is. Now, what are you going to do about it? And that's what this Sunday is all about is beginning to to not only hear who he is, but now respond to that call. And that's the theme we have this coming soon. Yeah, really cool. So let's take a look at the, um, well, let's get the uh, the readings for this coming Sunday. Um, get out your Bibles, get out your notebooks, and here's what we have. For the first reading, we're in the first book of Samuel, chapter 3 verses 3 through 10, and then verse 19. The responsorial psalm is taken from Psalm 40. The gospel is John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. And the epistle is St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 6, verses 13 through 15, and then 17 through 20. There you have it. Ready to go to Samuel? We're going to go to Samuel here. So I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles, and I'm going to give you my second hobby horse. My first was about the liturgy. My second hobby horse, which is going to take a little bit of time uh, to unpack, which is going to impinge upon the time that we actually study reading the text. But it's this, and it's very important that I'm at this conference of priests. And um, and please tell me they brought Bibles. Did they bring Bibles? Do they have Bibles there? Well, that, that's my hobby horse. Oh, okay. Okay. So now I don't want to be, I'm not trying to j- cast, you know, disparaging remarks on anyone else. First of all, the conference is very well organized. We're beautiful. Speakers are great. And all the guys are really nice. All, you know, I mean, these are all guys who've given themselves to the service of the Lord and they tend to be rather conservatively minded. There's not, there's more than a handful wearing cassocks and, you know, all those good signs. But there's a problem. From my perspective, and that is that I look around down the long run of tables this way and the wrong run of tables that way. I look over there and I look over there and it's hard for me. I think I've seen two Bibles uh, in the last two days. 
And he said, Father has the kind. Don't give the guys a hard time. I'm not giving them a hard time. They take a little, they got to do continuing education. They come out, they have a little time to relax and like that and so forth. And a lot of them aren't doing the kind of work I'm doing with the Institute of Catholic Culture. They're out there. They're taking care of six parishes. I met a priest. He's, a, he's in a, a parochial vicar. He's an assistant. And he runs around to six different churches in New York. Okay. Like, <laughs> okay. So I understand. So I'm not trying to be, be, um, be critical. But I, but we're at a Bible conference. Yeah. Now there's a lot of cell phones out there. And, and I did notice that this morning when one of the speakers got up there, they grabbed their cell phones, you know, at first, at first. But those cell phones were eventually put down. And even the one or two Bibles that they will see out there eventually put down because the speaker's going so fast. You couldn't possibly keep up with them. I was, I was having a hard time myself flipping. And by the time he tells you, turn to First Samuel chapter three, he's already started. It's gone. What's the point, right? So our goals here at the Institute of Catholic Culture, I'm just going to speak to all of us that gather together for Sunday gospel reflections because, you know, we're fairly large number of people that get together every week for this. And, um, and, but we're a group and we can imagine ourselves, you know, packing a church hall or two or three. And, uh, and, um, and, and um, in that church hall, what do we want going on? And that is, we want to make sure we have our Bibles handy. And, and you say, well, I've got my cell phone. All right, look, if you've got your, if you're using your cell phone at this point, and you've been with us for a couple of years. You're not listening to me anyway, so I'm not talking to you. For the rest of you people, I want to make sure that when we're doing our Sunday Gospel Reflections, that you're actually getting your Bible out. Um, and, and so that you, and we're going to see this in the Gospel today. That the, that the scriptures are oftentimes written in such a way that they're, they're artistic in structure. That is, they have they have a literary structure to them so that they follow patterns. And if you don't see those patterns, well, you lost the piece of art. Yeah. And you lost the vision, the vision that the Lord wants to give us by inspiring the author to write in such a way to use his God-given gifts to focus our attention by structuring the text or or repeating the text, right? It's a repetition, or a, or using a, a, the literary uh, the framing devices, or things like that. Very important. And um, and I and I could see that the speakers themselves were speaking in such a way they didn't expect the priests to actually open their Bibles mm. and turn to the text. And I don't know. You th- might think I'm wrong. Maybe you're right. But I think I'm right. And I'm actually running the Institute. So I'm going to tell you what I think. And that is that if you don't get your Bible out and actually open with us the scriptures as we're studying together each week, you're only getting a small portion of what you should be getting. So I just I'm going to just say it right here at the outset, 2024. Yeah, maybe you've made this thing or that thing. Decide you're going to do this this year or that this year. I'm going to ask you as, as, as a priest. To get out your Bible and start reading it. Mm-hmm. And if you've been participating in this study, but you're like, eh, I'm not going to turn there. I'm not going to turn there. You're not getting the goods. You know, I was in there in the conference today. And I'm and I'm allowing myself today. I don't usually do this. I allow myself a bit of an extended hobby horse. 
Now you're gonna laugh and say you always you extend them, but no, really. I mean, I'm gonna impinge upon our on our on our text today because I if we don't get this principle down, we're just not gonna get it. It's just it, it. so I'm gonna do. I'm, this is what I was doing. Literally an hour ago, I was out that door, and I was over at the conference center, and we were looking at the Gospel of Mark. So I'm gonna turn you there, Mark chapter six. Mark chapter six. Verse 45, well, Mark chapter 6, verse um, uh, 30, okay, um, and I'm just going to, for sake of time, I'm going to come down to verse 37, but he answered them, you give them something to eat, and they should, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them? Uh, to eat, and he said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they had found out they have five loaves and two fishes. There's multiplication of loaves and fishes, right? Mm -hmm. Which takes place in a place called Tabga, in the location of, of a bunch of springs, okay? Um, Heptapagon, it's called in Greek. And um, there's a bunch of springs just south of Capernaum, right? Well, there's a monastery there now of Benedictines that commemorates the location of the multiplication of loaves and fishes. And, and so Jesus multiplies the loaves and fishes, and then, having attracted too much attention from Herod and his soldiers, he says to his disciples, get in the boat, get out of here. And they start sailing across the sea. For those that have been in the Holy Land with me, we've been there, we got in the boat, we went across, like, right in that area. Okay. He gets to the other side of the sea, having undergone a, a storm and so forth. Like this. And, and, and then in chapter 8, in chapter 8, verse 4, and his disciples answered him, how can one feed these men with bread here in the desert? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. Hmm. Does that remind you of something I just read to you? Yeah, we just read that a couple okay. chapters ago. There you go. Yeah. Verse 38, how many loaves do you have? Sorry, chapter 6, verse 38, how many loaves you have? Chapter 8, verse 5, how many loaves you have? See that? Yeah. Okay. Then I'm going to come down to verse chapter 6, verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. That's chapter 6, verse 45. Right. Now go over to chapter 8, verse nine, verse 10. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples. Huh. Okay, and then and then take a finally look at look at this with me, um, um, verse fourteen. Or I'm um, not verse eight. Sorry, verse seventeen. Sorry, chapter eight, verse seventeen. Okay. Um, um. Sorry, yeah, verse seventeen. Yeah, yeah. And being aware of it, Jesus said to them, "Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand?" Are your hearts hardened? Come back to me with chapter 6, verse 52. And they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Okay, do you see this? Huh. Right? Chapter yeah. 6. So the speaker yeah. just a minute ago was pointing, was, was kind of drawing these two things together beautifully. Um, and um, and I'm and I was learning stuff. The, the guy that was teaching was actually my professor when I was in college, my scripture professor when I was in college. And and I'm John writing stuff down, and because I was, 
I love the Gospel of Mark and these particular chapters. And, and I myself, even though I've read this many times, I hadn't picked up quite exactly those repetitions altogether, right? Because I'm still learning a lot about the Bible. And so what did I do? I took the little, I took my little ruler, or in this case, I didn't have my ruler with me. Naughty, naughty, Father has guys. And I took the notepad that I was using and I put it across the pages and I drew lines. Chapter six, chapter eight. Yeah, yeah. So my eyes would see them and allow me to then read what's inside the, that framework because that's what it is, right? It's a framing device. You have, yeah. you have these two multiplications that take place and all these cross-references going on intentionally by the author saying the same words, right? Mark's intentionally, it's not that Jesus didn't say this thing, but is drawing it out, right? Right. Specifically in this way so that we can begin to see them in, in comparison to one another how they're different, but also how they're the same. And then having framed this thing, read the center of it as it's meant to be read. Okay. Wow. So this is my big hobby horse that I'm just telling you, 400 priests in that room, but we weren't going slow enough, number one, and they didn't have their Bibles in front of them, number two. So they missed a lot of what this teacher was teaching. So when we're together in this Bible study, Sunday Gospel Reflections, I know you all want to get ready for this Sunday, and that's beautiful, that's great. But unless we have the tools of the trade, what I'm going to be teaching you isn't going to really help you all that much. Because honestly, I don't know that much. I know a little. But what I do know enough of is that I don't know enough. And so i got to slow down. And i got to listen. And I got to take the time to do exactly what I was just describing. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're, you're not going to do that with your cell phone. You're just not. And you're not going to be able to do it. Your Bible's sitting on the other side. And I'm too lazy to flip back to First Samuel and then up to John and back to Psalms. And, and all this guy's going back and forth. It's all too much. If it's too much, then I'm sorry. The word of God is too much. But if you want to receive the gift of invitation, which is what this is, right? We remember, we do not follow the word of God. Well, I should say this. We, and someone's going to quote me on that. They're going to take, Father, it is a guy that says, me to follow no, we're not a people of the book, as Pope Benedict said. We're not a people of the book. We're a people of the living word of God. Yeah. The book, your scriptures, the Bible is your written invitation to the encounter. But if you never actually pick up the invitation and read it, you won't know where the party is and what time it's happening. Mm-hmm. Okay, So this is my big hobby horse today. And it's one that, that you say, okay, we got the point, Father. Well, I'm sorry. When I got 400 priests in a conference that's dedicated to the Bible and they knew they were coming to it and you paid for it because I'm sitting at the table and they're all telling me last night at dinner that their parish paid for them to come to the conference. Yeah. yeah they, they, they expensed it to the parish. Well, that's good. That's a, that's a very reasonable use of, of the parish expenses, I think. But for God's sake, if your people are paying for you to go to a Bible conference and you don't even have the wherewithal to get your Bible 
out of your Bible, out of your, 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 your bookcase and bring it to the conference with you. Then you wasted your par parish money. Yes. So, but God bless them. That's one problem that you and I can take responsibility for ourselves. And that's what I'm calling you to do today. At the beginning of 2024 right now, let's take responsibility for ourselves. Make a commitment that we will never do SGR, no matter whether I can see you on the other screen or not. We'll never do SGR without our Bible. And this is the commitment I'm making to you. That on moving behalf. forward with Sunday Gospel Reflections, we are going to use the references that are in our lectionary. But we are not going to skip verses in between the verses that are skipped coming Ooh. forward. Okay. And, and so I'm going to be using moving forward my RSV. Okay. And because I usually print off, well, the USCCB has, you know, verse, verse three we skip and verse 15 we skip and blah, blah, blah. We're not going to do that anymore. We're going to start at the beginning of the first verse that's given to us and go to the last verse that's given to us. The whole text in there is a text, a context. Is no text at all. And that's me making a commitment to you. And you making a commitment to me is that you're going to get out your Bible every time. I'm going to take the time to do it. Now, this leaves us with a lot less time to do our study this week, but I think it was worth it. I think we had to do it right here at the beginning of 2024. Let's go ahead and open. Give us our passage, Annie. All right. First Samuel chapter three. Yep. And we're starting at verse three. Yep. And I guess we're going all the way through 19. Sounds good. All right. <clears throat> oh, it starts in the middle of the sentence. So um, why don't we just well, start at verse two? Start at verse one. Go. Okay, we'll start at verse. Of course, let's start at verse one. All right, here we go. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down within the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not, did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again a third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood forth, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone that hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I tell him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be expiated by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, 
and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. Okay, here we have it. Wow. Okay. So uh, this brings up a lot of questions when we have those uh, verses between um, what verse uh, 10 and and 19 with Mm -hmm. the uh, the the story of Eli there, what the Lord wants to do with Eli. But first of all, just what what do we need to know about Samuel? Well, okay. the first thing is to come back with to first Samuel chapter one verse one and following. And so I'm going to just come back there and just kind of give you a couple of things and let you read it on your own. But here we are in chapter one, verse one, there was a a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim. Zophim. Aren't you glad to make you pronounce that? Of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah and uh, the son of uh, Jeroham, the son of Elihu son of Tohu, and so forth. So he had two wives, and the name of the one was Hannah, and the other, Peninnah. Now, okay, now you can go ahead. You can read this on your own, verse, and I'm going to make you do it. I'm giving you a little bit of homework right here, but Hannah is barren. She comes before the Lord. She weeps for him and prays, um, and uh, this should be recalling for you, of course, the story of Joachim and Anna, from the Proto-Evangelium of St. James, who also prays before the Lord because she is barren. And um, and then Hannah um, and makes a, a vow to the Lord that if she becomes pregnant, she'll dedicate her boy, her, her, her child, to the service of the Lord in the tent of meeting. So this is still a, a kind of intervening point, really, between the time of the Exodus and the time of uh, the the kings. Okay, you all know the story of King David, Solomon, the building of the temple. You all know the story of Moses and Joshua and the Exodus. But the inner there's a connector that happens right in between. When the Exodus happens, they get out, they do 40 years of wandering, and then they enter into the promised land, carrying the Ark of the Covenant in, and now begins the time of conquest. Yeah. And the time of conquest then kind of comes to its well, it doesn't really come to its fulfillment and conclusion until David finally conquers Jerusalem. Sure. But in this intervening time in which they're in the land, but they haven't fully, you know, they're still they're still camping out, let's say. They're still in tents, and the Lord's ark is still being carried around the tent of me that was used, is built in Mount Sinai and used to carry the ark across the desert. So it's still in a tent of meeting. Which is which what David brings up in 2 Samuel chapter 7 says, why is it that my Lord dwells in a tent when I'm in a nice house in Jerusalem? And so that begins the story of 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's later on down the road. In this intervening time is the time of the judges. So you get in your mind this, this thing. You know, the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the 12 sons of Jacob, and they sell their brother into slavery. They end up in slavery and the time of the exodus. 
after the Exodus and the 40 years of wandering, this intervening time of the judges, which uh, which Samuel is kind of like the last, the last of the judges. And he literally introduces us to the kings. And that's all that's exactly what what is going on here when Eli is being rejected because Eli's sons are disobedient and Eli won't do anything to discipline them. And you can see that here in um, in first Samuel chapter two, verse twenty two. Um, Chapter First Samuel chapter two verse twenty two. Now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to Israel, and how they lay with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. These are these are the women that are dedicated to the like dedicated virgins to the Lord, and what are they doing? Wow. Yeah, um, not to mention probably stealing money and doing all sorts of other things with, with all the gifts of sacrifice. And he didn't do anything about it. And he didn't do anything about it. So the 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 kingdom, in a sense, is going to be taken, ripped from his hands, just like it was taken from the hands of uh, of, of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, because they're acting in a way in the house of the Lord that's not proper. So he, they're going to now, in a sense, lose their inheritance. And Samuel's going to be this intervening figure. Well, Samuel is not Eli's son. As Eli calls him his son, it's not his son. Eli is the son of this guy, Elkiah, Elkiah, right here in, in verse uh, chapter one, sorry, Elkanah, chapter one, verse one, and his wife, Hannah, who there in chapter one, Samuel's born, and she ends up singing her Magnificat, chapter two, yeah. verse one. Hannah also prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My strength exalts in the Lord. My mouth to rise my enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. I brought this up before. This is, of course, this is, of course, very similar to what Mary says, right? Yep. And I've said this before, but it's very beautiful. I like to say it again. And that is, the, why is it that Mary knows Hannah's, Hannah's hymn? Is because her mother, Hannah, her mother, Hannah, Anna, it's the same name. Hannah, Hannah, yeah. Anna, Mary's mother must have taught Hannah's hymn to her daughter when she was rejoicing in what God had done for her. And so Mary now has made this prayer her own. And so when her moment comes to open her heart to the Lord, what comes out of it, that's what's put into it, right? Because her mother was faithful, unlike Eli, right? Who ends up with these with these with these sons? So Samuel grows up. Then Hannah dedicates him to the temple, and you see that there. Chapter uh, two, verse twenty-six. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. Okay, which you can go and make a reference there to Luke chapter two, verse yeah. nine, verse thirty-nine, if you want. But no, we're not turning there right now. And so forth. So that kind of gives you a sense. It's this intervening period. Now, I got to point out one last thing to you before we move on. And that is that while we got to go back and read 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2 to get to chapter 3. Really, you got to go back and read the story of the judges to get the context for this of what's going on. And what's going on here 
um, is uh, in Judges. You can pick it up in Judges chapter twenty, uh, chapter twenty-one, verse twenty-five. Chapter twenty-one, verse twenty-five. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. This is this is the problem, and this is the problem which is is really at the root of of the problems going on around Samuel, problems going around around Eli, they will come to a culmination in 1 Samuel chapter 8 at the end of Samuel's life. Now, we still have to look at this text itself a little bit, but, but chapter 8, verse 1, is 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. Are you with me? Mm-hmm. Are you really with me, Annie? I am. I'm really with you. First Samuel chapter eight, verse one. Okay. When Samuel became old. So now we've got a whole span of Samuel's life. You want to know everything about Samuel? Just read chapters one through eight. And Samuel became old. He made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel. Joel, And the name of the second was Abijah. They were judges in Be'er Sheva. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain, and they took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to govern us like all the other nations. So they, 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 so notice back, if we come back to the last verse of Judges, there was no king in Israel, and everyone was doing what was what was right in his own eyes. And well, what was right in his own eyes was shacking up with the ladies at the front of the tent of meeting and uh and 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 stealing the money of them taking bribes and all this stuff and look my brothers and sisters nothing new under the sun are you surprised when your priests are sinners are you surprised when you're when the bishops are are uh you know i i I could say it caught in pedophilia for god's sake you surprised when the when, when when declarations come out from 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 the rome with Apparently, the approval of the Pope, with with te- apparently contradictions to the to the to the revelation of God. Don't be surprised. Peter denied Christ three times. Don't be surprised, but remain rooted firmly in the Word of God, always seeking to hear His Word, to do His will, and that, my brothers and sisters, is our theme. For this Sunday, as we look at this text in First Samuel chapter three, yeah. So it's talk about this. Um, can you call it an exchange between the Lord and Samuel? I mean, what what is? I don't know. It, it's just such a. It seems like such a sweet story, right? Like this little boy, and he hears. But there's got to be more to it than just being this, you know, sweet little story about well, God saying the- Samuel. <laughs> The first thing, the first thing I think I'd like to mention to you is is the, uh, a consistent theme in salvation history, in which the vision of God is given. It 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 it, it says lulls the 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 person to, into a sleep, into a, a deep sleep. And now the sleep that is spoken of is not one of of unknowing or non-existence or whatever it is, you know, like you know, unconsciousness. Right. But an attentiveness that we would not otherwise have. Okay, and this begins in Genesis uh, chapter two. So let's turn back there for a second. 
Genesis chapter 2 in verse 21. Genesis chapter 2 verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And he slept and, and while he took one of his ribs and closed up in his place of the flesh. And the rib which the Lord had taken from the man. He made woman and brought her out to man. And the man said, this is that last bone of my bone. St. Ephraim points this out. He says, how does he know it's bone of my bone? Unless he saw the Lord doing it. Yeah. So apparently the sleep which Adam enters into is not one of unconsciousness, but one of keen perception. Mm. Into the divine resting in the Lord. Yeah. What, what, else, did, what else does this take place, Annie, in the Bible? The transfiguration. On, the I, transfiguration. I yeah. 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 Well, what else in the book of Genesis? When else does this happen? I'm just uh, shooting it oh, out. Oh, Abraham. Abraham. Yeah, Abraham. When when else? Um, well, Jacob and the ladder. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This happens, uh, this happens multiple times, many times in uh, salvation history. And I'd encourage you to go. It's a nice little study if you want to, you know, this. I don't know when you're you're gonna watch this video on Thursday or Friday or something. It's a good thing on Friday to do. You know, got a little extra time to turn off the television. Um, and that is to go look up all the times in the Bible. Get out your concordance. Right, you got a little and you have your concordance handy right there. I do. Look at that. You see that? You always have a kind of a concordance handy right there. Boom. And you can look up the word sleep or dream. Yeah, you could you could do a whole study here of how God reveals himself to us. It's very beautiful because in the midst of this revealing, Annie, you don't have to open your concordance and go look up sleep because you're going to find like 400 references in your Bible. Well, I'm just kind of curious to see. I'm still in like sin right now. (laughs) There's a lot of references to sin. So in the midst of this sleeping now, notice what happens to Samuel. Notice what happens to Samuel. And then we're going to turn to what a little bit of a, what how what we can learn from this but first samuel chapter three again um uh notice that it's in the midst of this sleeping um um that that samuel hears the word of the lord samuel started calling him calling him by name right he hears his his name being called and then he responds to that but when he responds to it, his name he called, notice, notice where his reference is to, to who calls him. Uh, and, and that is his, his Eli, right? His kind of spiritual father. Remember, mm-hmm. Eli calls him his son. So he turns to his spiritual father. And I think there's a, a little bit of a, a, a nice little lesson about how important our spiritual fathers are, how important it is to have a guide in the spiritual life so that we're not kind of the me and Jesus Protestant business. I'm sorry, this is not. It's just, it's not, it's not, it's not a biblical concept. No, in fact, I was, we were looking at this in this conference today about um, how Jesus distributed the multiplication of loaves and fishes by giving those loaves and fishes to the disciples for distribution. Yeah. So we always look to our elders, to our fathers, to be a, a guide in the spiritual life. And God speaks oftentimes through them. But here again and again, um, uh, Eli is called by name, and and it kind of sets us up beautifully, by the way, for the gospel account. It, I, I would just say one last thing, and I don't know if you have other questions, 
but but notice that, that it's not the Lord banging on the head of, 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 of Samuel or there's not an earthquake. Samuel's resting in the presence of God. And being there in the presence of the Lord, the Lord begins to speak with him because Samuel has prepared himself to be spoken to. And this theme is going to be carried over in in the gospel account. But I think here at the beginning of of the calendar year um, and at the beginning of so-called ordinary time, beginning of the season, it's good for us to meditate upon this. So I encourage you to be meditative on this coming Sunday. Um, it, it at least reference the Old Testament, but again, we're going to look at it in the new. And then is how we are preparing ourselves to be like Samuel and whether we are spending the time necessary to be in the presence of God so that God can speak to us. Um, or do we expect him to become crashing into our busy lives? As I said in my Christmas homily this year for my parishioners, I said, it's, it's not that Christmas is a busy time of year. It's that our lives are too busy for Christmas. We've made them so busy that there literally is no time to fit in all the stuff that we got to get done. And that's true here again. Remember the story of the prophet Elijah who goes up on Mount Sinai and there's an earthquake, there's fire, there's wind, there's all this stuff, but God wasn't in any of them. And then it says there was a still small voice. And that is the still small voice that Samuel heard. And it's the still small voice that speaks to us every day um, in so many ways. Um, and if if we, we are willing to make this year ahead a time in which when we get to Christmas next year, it, our lives aren't so busy that there's no room for Christmas, then we will have made space for the word of God. And I think that's what Samuel did in his life. Yeah. Well, why don't we look at how that worked out in John's gospel then? Okay, let's take a look. And of John, course, this theme... This theme, I let, I, well, you got to look at the response to your psalm because it's, it's just repeated there, right? And again, oh, yeah. response to your psalm. Here I am, Lord, I come to do your will. Yeah. So Long again, re- 40. yeah. Yeah. So, so this is what is, this is what the church is calling us to meditate upon. To, to say, here I am, Lord. Right? Here I am. And to be willing to respond to that calling to be the one who is a minister of God's word, which is what Samuel becomes. Yeah. So just let that, the response to Psalm, as I've said so many times, the Psalm is meant to be sung. Let it be sung by you this Sunday and allow your heart to be opened up, your life to be opened up to the work of God. One of the most inspiring things for me as the founder of the Institute of Catholic Culture is to see people that are members of, of our, of our ICC family, who are going back into their parishes, who are gathering their friends at their homes, who are uh, becoming ushers in their community. Um, a friend of mine, Teresa, who's who's a very accomplished um, uh, uh, higher up, if you will, in the Washington, D.C. area, 
um, uh, out there serving the poor and the hungry and the needy. Um, that I, I I hope your formation in the Institute of Catholic Culture does just that for you. It puts you back into the catechetical classroom with the children. It, it involves you in your uh, is it, it bringing the flowers to the to the the statue of the Virgin Mary um, to make our faith real because we've we've heard the word of God and we've decided to respond to it. Yeah, so read us that response, Earl Psalm again, Here I am, Lord, I come to do your will. And that's it right there. That's it. Let's take a look at the gospel text today. All right, we are in John chapter one, starting with verse 35. Now, this goes straight through to 42. So should I read the lectionary version or the RSV version? So Which John, one? we're at John 1, verses starting at verse 35, and you're saying it goes yep. through to verse 42. 42 in our in our lectionary text. Yep. Yeah, there's no break, there's no breaking yeah, of the verses. No yeah. Yes, yeah, so that's what we're gonna read it. Yeah. Okay. I'll yeah. read the lectionary version. Because I read it from Samuel. I read from oh, my from RSV? Bible. Oh, yeah. I don't care what you want to do. I okay. We'll read the lectionary version. This All time. right. Oh, okay. Just, to, we'll use the, just to spice it up a little. The new American version. We're really going to spice it up. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Here we go. John chapter one, verse 35. John was standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he said, behold, the lamb of God. The two disciples heard what he said and followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following him and said to them, what are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they went and saw where Jesus was staying and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, was one of the two who heard John and followed Jesus. He first found his own brother, Simon, and told him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated Christ. Then he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. There's a lot of... Uh, translating that's going on in in this passage which is super interesting father but um talk a little bit about when this is happening you you mentioned it a little bit earlier yeah well it's just right in the context of the baptism of the lord right the revelation now has taken place the one who is the lamb of god has 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 come to the jordan river has been baptized at the hand of john and now uh, and now um, uh, the, the, the disciples of John can begin to follow him and, and with, with him, all of us, right, begin to follow him. So that you have the baptism of the Lord there, verse 29 through 34. In John, in particular, he focuses on an, an aspect of the baptism which is fundamentally important, that is the descent of the Holy Spirit, right? So you read, it, in, some, in some sense, it doesn't feel like John gets the baptism as much because he's, he's he, it's verse 32, and John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend as a dove from heaven, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, and so forth like that. So, mm -hmm. and so the, this text in John, John really focuses upon the fact that the Spirit of God 
descends upon this one. Yeah. yeah. Who the disciples that can follow. Okay. So, um, I, I'm kind of curious because it, the lamb of God, it's something that, you know, we Roman Catholics here at, at every mass, I don't know the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. So I don't know if you use that terminology in there, but like, it's something that we kind of just let wash over us. I think what would that have meant if John's pointing out, it says, behold, the lamb of God, like to his disciples, what would that have meant to them? Okay. Well, first, first of all, the, the, I'm, I'm going to answer that question, but I'm going to maybe come just a few moments before that. And that is sure. that in this text itself, we're actually just picking up the end piece of, uh, of this point. So we pick it up here. And it's not really supposed to be going to be read right here because yeah. it's, it's part of another piece. And that piece is just what I pointed out. Notice, um, um, notice verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then verse 35, the next day again, was John was standing with his two disciples. He looked at Jesus. He watched and said, behold, the lamb of God. So if you see how John, there's a repetition here. Yeah. yeah, that repetition creates a frame much like Mark chapter six and chapter eight. So John is writing and making use of a literary device to frame the central point of which of what he's trying to get across, and that is that Jesus is the one who comes with the Spirit. Yeah, um, I've got a quote here from Saint Athanasius. Um, I believe it's Saint Athanasius. Yes, and uh, it says, um, it says, um, nor nor does repentance recall men from what is according to their nature. All as it does, all it does is make them cease from sinning. St. Ephraim says, John whitened the stains of sin with ordinary water, or with the call to repentance, right? So that the bodies might be rendered suitable for the robe of the spirit that is given through the, through our Lord. And so what, what John is doing in preparation, Jesus does in fulfillment. Yeah, he comes and to give the spirit to our humanity. Um, and so John uh, intentionally frames this gift of the spirit with this phrase, Lamb of God, which begins to, I think, answer the question that you're asking. Because in the Old Testament, there are a number of lambs of God, if you will, right? The first, uh, the first being um, Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, I believe it is. I wrote it down here. Uh, for all of us, because uh, I'm going to give you a bunch of Bible references right now. So you want to have your notebook out, and I'm going to just, we're not going to actually go back to Genesis 22, but you're going to read Genesis 22, and Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, right? It says, on this mountain, the lamb, of, the God will provide the lamb. Yes. Um, and um, and that, that, well, we got to go back there. How can I not go back there? Genesis chapter 22. Let's go flipping back in our Bibles, especially after I was saying earlier. Take our time. Genesis chapter 22. Um, um, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here, here am I. He said, take your son. Your only son. Notice, notice that the similarity, by the way, between 
um, First Samuel chapter three. Yeah, here I'm right, there's a, yeah. a parallel there. It's very nice. Um, and he said, um, take your son I, whom you love and go to the, the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his ass. And he took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering, arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar. Then Abraham said to the young men, stay, young men, stay here with the ass. I and the ladder are going yonder to worship and, and, and will come again to you. Uh, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it upon Isaac, his son, and he took his the hand, uh, the fire, and the knife. And they said, they went both together. And Isaac said to, him, to his father, Abraham, to his father, Abraham, my father. He said to him, here am I, my son. And he said to him, behold the fire and the wood. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb. Yeah. And so the fathers of the church point this out and say, say that when he gets up to the top and, and Abraham's hand is stayed by the Lord, what is it that Abraham um, ends up sacrificing in verse 13? Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, uh, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by, the, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it. So this becomes a, a point. That the that the, uh, the the Jews the the biblical scholars in the Old Testament point out, as well as the New Testament scholars, the fathers of the church point out, they say, notice that Abraham prophesies that God would provide Himself a lamb for the offering, but it is a ram, which is which is uh, which which is ultimately sacrificed. Saint Ephraim says, you know, Saint Ephraim is amazing. He's very beautifully. He says he says in that moment this ram which was provided prefigures the lamb, which God would provide Jesus. For when Abraham turned his head, he saw the ram caught by its horns and hung in the, in the, in the tree, wow. prefiguring the hanging of the lamb who was to come. Wow. Yeah? And then Abraham says in verse uh, 14, so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord, will provide as it is said to this day on the mountain of the lord it shall be provided now if you turn your bibles with me to psalm 76 psalm 76 um here we go psalm 76 uh verse one are you with me not quite. I'm getting there. All right. You got to get there. 76 verse 1. I'll give you a minute to get there, everybody. In Judah, are you with me? Go ahead. 76 verse 1. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem. Yeah. So, so where is, where is Abraham? He's, he's up there. He's on, he's on Mount Moriah, which is another name for this ancient name for, or this ancient name, Salem, which ends up being called Yerusalem. Yeah, why? Because of this exact moment. Um, the the word Yeru in in uh, in Hebrew means means pr will provide. God will provide, um, and Salem means peace. Yeah, 
related to shalom, peace. So the Lord provided his peace on this mountain. Yeah. And that's what Abraham prophesies and the Jews look forward to, expecting that in God's time, that yes, indeed, God would provide the lamb to be sacrificed to bring a restoration between the relationship of God and his people. And this hope continues on and provides the foundation for the sacrifice of the Passover lamb in the in the tradition of the Jews. So there's your second lamb, which you get um, that you'd want to look up in Exodus chapter 12. And we're not going to turn there. I really am not going to turn there. Exodus chapter 12, the Passover lamb by which Israel is saved from death. Yeah. When the, when the angel of death passes over the, uh, um, the houses of Egypt and the people of God through the sacrifice of the lamb and the blood on the doorpost are saved by that sacrifice, and they themselves live while sinful man, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, die, or the, the firstborn are put to death. And so this becomes the second primary image of the Lamb of God in the Old Testament. But it's not the last one, because this all provides a foundation for the hope of God's people in which the lamb of provided by God will be provided. And the people of God will not only be saved from Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they'll be saved from death. And that is the hope that the prophets give them, primarily the hope the prophet Isaiah gives them regarding the suffering servant, which is given to us in the book of Isaiah. So turn there with me to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42. Well, we we really should start in chapter 40. And I'm going to hold my hand in chapter 40. And I'm also going to hold my hand in our in our gospel text today, which is John chapter 1. Um, and I'm going to start with John chapter 1, holding my hand in Isaiah 40. Okay. So I'm in I, I'm in John 1 and Isaiah 40. I'm in John 1, verse 23. John 1, verse 23. You with me, Annie? I'm going back to John. Go ahead. You're holding your hand in Isaiah 40. Don't give up on me, guys. I'm not going to give up on you. I promise you. I'll never go too fast. You can't get there. And besides that, you get your pause button. Okay. (laughs) Chapter, Chapter 1, John chapter 1, verse, what did I say? Verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So John, John the evangelist, specifically draws out this line from John the Baptist, highlighting it as a way to begin to tell you about the Lamb of God who is going to receive the Spirit upon him. Do you see that? Yeah. This is, is in some, some sense, this is the introduction. Now look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 2, verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the desert highway for our God. Mm-hmm. Well, this all begins Isaiah's introduction to this mysterious person who, who Isaiah is going to introduce to us, and that is Isaiah's suffering servant. In chapter 42, 
So you say, you're still holding your hand in John chapter one, and you're in Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant whom I, who I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Okay, now hold on. We got to go one step further because in Isaiah chapter 52, which is the most famous passage of all regarding this, um, this, this servant, not chapter, yeah, chapter 50, sorry, chapter 53, I should say, chapter 53. This same servant we hear about in verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that made us whole, and with his stripes we are all healed. All, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep before its shears is dumb. He opened not his mouth. Mm -hmm. so Isaiah's servant. Who's introduced by the same thing John the Baptist says, right, is the one who has a spirit upon him and is himself the Lamb of God. So this is, this is uh, certainly, certainly Genesis 22, the Lamb that Abraham prophesies, certainly the Passover Lamb, prefigurements of Christ that John is picking up on. But those two prefigurements prefigure what Isaiah says about this suffering servant. And this suffering servant becomes the primary referent to John, who identifies this one as the one God will send, who will carry not the wood for the sacrifice on his shoulders like Isaac, but he will carry the iniquity of the whole world to bring peace to mankind. Wow. So yeah. then let's cut to the chase. Oh. You see why you have to have your Bible in front of you and not be on your cell phone because you can't possibly draw a line in your Bible from verse 29 to 35 in your cell phone. Oh, but Father, I have this little graphic garden. I draw the line in the thing. But I, I can't do that. Yeah. You people. <laughs> so there is. So, so this is John writing in this in this literary way to draw yeah. us in to see the spirit. And if you don't see that as a, as as the center of his frame, as the the artwork in the midst of the frame, Lamb of God, then then I'm then you can't really know what Lamb of God you're talking about because you got multiple lambs in the Old Testament, mm -hmm. right? But it's only when you use it as its frame and then you see the artwork in the middle that you have the the interpretive framework to be able to go back and say ah, ha, ha, john is making use of isaiah no doubt as his primary reference yeah okay uh, so then father what does all of this mean then for andrew this mysterious other disciple that's not named in here and and simon who then gets called peter yeah well the mysterious other disciple is is john John the evangelist. Every time John mentions himself, right, the one who leaned on the breast of the Lord, he never mentions himself by name. 
he always says the other disciple or the disciple Jesus loved or whatever the case may be, the one who leaned upon his breast. See, he always, out of humility, he never he never names himself, but he is. So John, for, the first thing to know here is that John the evangelist, who leaned upon the breast of the Lord, who wrote the gospel, yeah, and Andrew, the brother of Peter, were both disciples of John the Baptist before they became disciples of the Lord. Now, you can pretty much be guaranteed that that, that 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 tells you something about Peter, right? It also tells you something about James, mm -hmm. that these all these guys up there in Capernaum, these were the guys, these are the young men, they're out fishing, the, 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 you know, the, the 20-somethings, you know? And they're, and um, John, John had, had had a connection with these guys, and they were all the same age, give or take, right? And, um, and they're hanging out with John in the, in the desert and they're going back up to Capernaum to go fishing and they're going back down for the feast days. These were guys that were, they were the daily mass goers, right? They were the rosary prayers. They were serious about coming to the Messiah and they were studying the scriptures. They're studying the word of God. They're reading Isaiah chapter 40 and 53 and so forth. And they're putting the pieces together so that when John says, Behold the Lamb of God. I mean, they're not sitting there figuring out whether it's Isaiah or not, right? They, they're they're primed. They've been living a life of repentance, a life of preparation. They've been listening to John. They've been hanging out with them in the desert, and they're ready to go. Yeah, and then he's able to just go, boom, that's him. And what do they do? They go. Yeah, and they don't need to look back. It's that it's that it's that easy. So that's I don't. What was your question, Annie? Who are these guys? Well, just you know, what does this all mean for them? Yeah, I mean the the clear connection here between our first reading and the gospel is this calling clearly um, yeah. by name, even yeah. um, that that we see in in the gospel and in Samuel. So so in verse. Um, yeah, I, I, let's just let's focus upon that a little bit here from verse uh, 37. Um, the two, two disciples heard him say this, that is, behold, the Lamb of God. And they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Yeah. What what time? What is it? What what's the four tenth hour? Four o'clock, I think it said. I think is it's that what it says in your thing? Four o'clock? Yeah, four in the afternoon. Yeah. yeah, because sunrise is right at about six. So the third hour of the day, which is so you you pray at sunrise, right? You pray at the third hour, nine o'clock, you pray at the sixth hour at noon, you pray at the at the ninth hour, three o'clock, right? And so oh, this God. is how the day is kept. And so now it's the 10th hour. It's about four o'clock in the afternoon. And they stayed with him. Um, and, uh, it, you know, into the evening, they stayed with him um, probably throughout through the night. I just stayed there. But I just remember John, and this is important, the Gospel of John. John always writes on two levels. I've spoken about this before. Um, right, right on two levels. One is the, the human level, the natural level, if you will, 
The other is the supernatural level. And the whole gospel of John is meant to take you from the natural level to the supernatural level. It's to make you realize that you're, and you, yes, you begin at the natural, but you're being drawn up. Yeah. And so there, and, and you see this with the, with the story of Nicodemus, for example, in chapter three, um, uh, about being born again, right? Um, Jesus, verse chapter three, verse three, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter second time in his mother's womb? So Nicodemus on a natural level, and Jesus says, no, no, you didn't get it the first time. Let me say it again. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, that Jesus is talking on another level, right? Jesus, the word, and, and there the word actually can be translated to be born anothen, to be born from above or to be born again. Nicodemus un- understands him on that, for, on that to be born again. I did get in the mother's womb, right? Do it again. Like, okay, come on, Nicodemus. Jesus is talking about another level, right? Same happens with the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. Right. When Jesus says, I will give you living water, the word that John uses there in the Greek Zoe means both living like life giving as well as running water. Right. And 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 there she says, you don't have anything to get the water and the well is deep. Right. And this is this is in John chapter uh, chapter four. You can read it for yourself. The well is deep and you have nothing to draw with. Well, because Jacob's well, that's the fresh water running in at the very bottom of it. And so she's thinking he's talking about the running water when he's talking about the living water of the spirit, right? And she's going to take time to be drawn up. Well, the same thing happens here. Come and see. Um, and, and we're meant to read this certainly on two levels. Yes, they were invited to come and hang out with Jesus, but Jesus is inviting something deeper and that deeper thing he's invited to is a conversion of heart, which is why this whole thing unfolds the way it does. I was wondering why he didn't just say like, oh, my address is such and such, you know? (laughs) But notice, notice what happens when they come and see, and they don't just come to the address. When they experience him, when they, when they um, enter into communion with him, suddenly the, the text the, they leave. They, 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 and I've been, I was seeing this in the last, this was one of my favorite passages I've been looking at over the last couple of months because it's so beautiful. Come and see, and immediately they leave. Well, the next day, right? You're like, well, what? I mean, really, is that what you would do? You just get out. Well, yeah, because once they've, they've drunk from the, the living water, talking about the, the Samaritan woman, then a well of water comes springing up within them. Because they have become like him who has given his life for the world. So Andrew not only goes and gets his brother, he can't not go and get his brother. He goes from being a disciple to an apostle. He, that conversion of heart which takes place by encounter because the image and likeness of God has been restored in him. The one who has poured out his life from all eternity invites us to become one with him. And therefore we must pour our life out for those around us. So we so that that conversion of heart takes place immediately once you come and see, yeah. And I and I, I'm just gonna go back to our time here as we spent a lot of time here together at the Institute of Catholic Culture, which is a lot of time studying the Bible, a lot of time considering the Word of God, a lot of time slowing down. I hope and listening. Um, and what, but once we've encountered, we we can no longer keep that gift to ourselves. 
We must allow that gift to come flowing out of us. And I would encourage you in your in your conversations, your workplaces, with your siblings, with your parents, um, uh, with your brothers and sisters, with your neighbor. Um, they, they ought to know you're you're a faithful Christian. They ought to know everyone, including the workplace, by the way. I'm not trying to get you fired. Sometimes, sometimes enough is enough, you know, and uh, we just. I don't mean you don't need to be rude to people. Um, you don't need to hit them over the head, you know, with your Bible. But to allow yourself to always be speaking in terms of your encounter with Christ. To always be speaking to others about what you've experienced. You see, Father, I want to experience that. Well, then come and see. Right. Then slow down. Look around your life right now and say, how is it that I'm going to take the time that I'm going to. First of all, to ask for the intercession of St. John the Baptist, hmm. to go to holy confession, right? To repentance. If you haven't been baptized, well, there's your baptism is, is, our, is, our, is our renewal of our, our confession, the renewal of our baptism, right? So go to confession, be fasting, um, um, and, and prepare yourself to, to see the word of God by, by hearing, by preparing from the Old Testament of the prophecies. And then spend the time necessary. And then having done that to allow the word of God to become not only an invitation to yourself, but to become your invitation that you give to others to come and see. And that's exactly what Andrew did to his, for his brother. Jesus could have done it differently. Jesus could have revealed himself in the Jordan River, blown the whole place sky high. The lightning could have descended from heaven and the entire world converted in that moment. But he didn't because he loves us too much to save us without us. He loved Andrew too much to save Peter without Andrew because he wants Andrew to live in his image and after his likeness. And he wants Peter to receive from Andrew that gift of faith just as much as he wanted Samuel to realize he had to go to Eli to have that 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 sense of, of that that the goods of this of, of the Lord are communicated through the created order and that's what the baptism of the Lord is all about right? the baptism enters in the Jesus enters into the waters of the Jordan reclaiming the nature of water the primordial waters by which creation was established, which had parted the waters and the earth came forth and God made man, reclaiming the most fundamental elements of this, of this earth. Because whatever God touches, God sanctifies. And water begins to communicate divine life again. Andrew begins to communicate divine life again. You and I are meant to communicate divine life again because we've eaten from the bread which is communicating divine life again. That's what it's all about. And I have to speak for a moment because I, we weren't together for, for the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord. When, when, and then and then in the current calendar is the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord celebrated. It was this past, so it was the Monday after. That's what I thought. That's what, so I, I, that's, yeah. that's what I thought. I, I was a little confused. I was looking at the, the traditional Latin mass calendar, which which is an octave after the... Right. The epiphanies, it gets very confusing, but anyways, um, uh, um, 
that's what that that's what this feast is all about is the transformation of creation so that it can do what it was originally supposed to do again. And that's what you and I have encountered in our baptism. And that's what you and I are called to today, to hear the voice of the Lord and then to begin to do what he does. And that is to go out as the ministers of the Lord's hands, his feet, his eyes, and his ears to bring salvation to the entire world. Because, as St. Paul says in the epistle, we were purchased at a price. Okay, give us our passage. All right, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting with verse 13. I guess I'll be reading from my RSV because it does skip some stuff in the lectionary. Okay, verse 13 through what? 13 through 20. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13. Go ahead. All right. Well, let's start at verse 12. Go ahead. Okay. All right. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who joins himself to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one. But he who is united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Shun immorality. Every other sin which a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God mm. in your body. That's, that's, that, that's, that's a beautiful way to bring all of this together. Samuel uh, resting in the, in the, in the uh, tent of meeting, hearing the voice of the Lord. And then going to become his minister, right? Um, the apostles doing just this exact thing, coming and seeing and staying with him, resting there in the presence of the Lord, and then going out to do his ministry. You and I also realizing that the purpose of our life is not our 401k. It is not our vacation in Hawaii. It's not our, 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 our car or our house or any of these things. These are all gifts from God. It's not to say they're bad, but why are you vacating in Hawaii? So that you can be a minister of the Lord in Hawaii. Why do you have a car? So that your car might participate in the ministry of God. I'm not sure how that, how, how you're going to do that in your life. I'll tell you when my, in my own experience, I remember when I was a young man, I was doing landscaping work in a landscaping business in Carmel, California, a lot of tourists. And I drive around each day and all these Carmel, California, these little roads, you know, and there's tourists everywhere. It's like, it's crazy. And you're trying to get to the next landscape job and run around and try to cut people off, get around people and yelling at people, get out of my way. And this old priest told me, he's, he was giving a homily and he was ta talking about this. He says, he's telling a story of a guy doing just this, going to work and somebody cuts him off and he, you know, made some gesture or yelled something at him. He says, he should have been blessing him. 
and that was the invitation to me. I started, I started going around looking for opportunities to get cut off. Uh, try, I, I see the tourists coming. I said, they're going to they're gonna do something stupid and I'm going to bless. <laughs> I'd raise my hand. I'd give a blessing. And you know what? It transformed my, my car. I was a vehicle of blessing then. And every day I look forward to getting cut off. And uh, it was a great opportunity to bless other people with the name of the Lord. And um, and make the sign of the cross over them. And uh, and and that's what our, 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 our cars are for. That's what our homes are for. That's what, you know why you have your job? So that Christ is present in that building, in that workplace. That's why you have that job. You know why you have your 401k or your bank account? So that you can take the things that God has given you and put them to work for the Lord. He could have done it himself. You don't think God has enough money? You think he doesn't have enough gold? He wants you to hold the gold that is his and then do what he does with it. Just like he gave it to you. He lets you hold it and then give it. That's what your body's for. That's why this craziness going on right now with the, with the homosexuality business. I, I hate to even talk about it, but it's so your body is not there to do for you what you want for your own satisfaction. It's so against the word of God. I mean, ah, God from all eternity poured his life out from the Father to the Son, the Holy Spirit. This is, this is why the Christian is a life giver. And any moral act, any act of man which does not bear fruit, which is not life giving, is 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 not a, a morally acceptable act. Yeah. It's as simple as that. It's unfruitful because it's self-reverential. It can't be fruitful. The only good fruit is born in living the life of the one who is born fruit from all eternity, and who has created you and created me to live like Him. So go live like him, but first, fast with John the Baptist. Pray with John the Baptist. Yeah? Become a person of the word of God like John the Baptist. Yeah? Repent with John the Baptist. And then go and stay with the Lord and hear him speak to you. And then, my brothers and sisters, you better get on a mission out in your parish and in your home and in your workplace because you are the light of Christ to the world. And if it's dark out there, my brothers and sisters, it's you that are meant to bring the torch of Jesus Christ and light this world on fire. Can I get an amen, church? Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.